I'm Heidi Zuckerman, and this is About Art. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is about art. My guest is Allison Berg. She is the founder and executive director of the A&L Berg Foundation. Originally a lawyer, she became an art and culture writer, which she is, and her work is informed by the desire to ensure that everyone has access to equity in career pathways along with inclusive platforms for their narratives. She has contributed to Cultured and C Magazines, the Hamptons Magazine, Design LA, Gotham. She was also a producer of The Art of Making It, a documentary, and is an arts patron and a trustee of boards including LACMA, the LA County Museum of Art, the Mistake Room, and the Los Angeles Football Club Foundation. So she's also served in leadership capacities, including at the Studio Museum in Harlem at DIA, and the Perez Museum in Miami. I think that a shared quality in all great art is that it it stops you and it slows you down, but you know, you come to it in different ways depending on the space, your mood, the day, right? And and yes. you're in a different headspace sometimes, racing faster or slowing down. We talk about things that we both love, including art and artists and being of service. We talk about how important it is to be present. We talk about the connections between art and athletes. And I know you're going to enjoy the conversation. I really enjoyed getting to know her and I'm sure that you will as well. Here we go. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I wanted to start off by just kind of, I guess, talking about our shared love of art. And I spent some time this morning just looking at your background and all the different ways that you have contributed to the art world and and all the different capacities that you serve in. And I just wanted to sort of start by asking you how you came to art. I was exposed casually to art growing up. I did not come from a collecting family. I did not come from a family that had experienced any higher education or what we might consider a cultured sort of lifestyle. But I I grew up in Philadelphia. I went on field trips from school to the Philadelphia Art Museum. I think my deeper dive into art came when I was living in New York City. And it was all around me in a way that I couldn't, you know, I think I couldn't not start learning more about it and started spending a little bit of time in galleries, really through formal tours, through community and philanthropic groups that I was involved with. And 
then when I was relocating to LA, somebody said to me, oh, my, my sister's an art advisor. And, you know, you could, you're probably going to want something on your walls. And if you work with my sister, you could get museum quality art instead of the things that, you know, a decorator is going to pick out to match your furniture. And I, I had never even heard of an art advisor at that point, but it sounded, sounded interesting to me. And it really, in terms of collecting, it started as an endeavor to decorate, I'll be honest. And then when I did relocate to LA, I asked that art advisor and I was very lucky. Um, and I say this in the most complimentary way. I think she was more of an academic than a marketplace expert. And she was from LA originally. And I asked her, how can I stay as close to visual art in LA where I know it's going to be more challenging than in New York? And she said, well, the first thing you need to do is get involved with LACMA. And that is what I did when I relocated here. And that took me on a whole new path, hearing about what the curators there were paying attention to and thinking about art as more of an idea than the object and hearing about narratives where I started thinking about how my formal educational experiences and history classes growing up must have let me down because it, it was just a whole new journey for me. What was the first thing that you bought? The first thing we acquired was actually a Kusama. And I was working with an art advisor and I thought that Kusama had a really interesting background. I loved that she was this resilient woman and kept pushing through her creativity regardless of the other challenges she was experiencing. So yes. That's amazing. Most people keep the very first thing that they ever acquired because it's sentimental or something like that. And you obviously got something amazing <laughs> straight out of the gate. So that's not that common. That's not that common. No, I did. I did. And ironically, relative to what you're saying, that was actually the first piece of art. And one of the only pieces of art we de-accessed, not because I didn't like it, but because the same dealer who I acquired it through came back to me and it had gone up tremendously in value. And I wasn't that attached to it. I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to take this opportunity and I can acquire more works. One of the questions that I ask people who have the great privilege of living with art is what hangs in their bedroom? That's a question for you now. <laughs> what hangs in my bedroom? We actually have a couple different Tracy Emmons. I have a Tracy, a large Tracy Emmons embroidery work, a Tracy Emmons sculpture. We have a Nicholas Slobo wall work that's leather and embroidery on, on canvas. We have a Glen Ligon. Hearing a little bit about what's in your what's in your bedroom. And I always ask that question because I think that people often put their favorite things in their bedroom. And or there's something about what people put in their bedrooms, I think, that just gives really a lot of insight in, into 
how they see and you know what they want to spend time looking at in in a really relaxed state. The first thing that people see when they come into your home is important. There's a you know always a kind of signature place like in a, a living room or whatnot. So there there are different meanings I think associated with different works based on the placement. And I think the intimacy of works that you fall asleep with and wake up with says something. And so, you know, Tracy Emmons' work is very sexy and the Glenn Ligon and, and some of the other works are are very probably, you know, thoughtful. And there's a materiality to all of these different works, like a physicality, probably. I mean, I haven't seen any of them, but just the knowing their practices, this is what comes up for me. I'm curious then about works that you enjoy living with and and what you're what you're looking for. I think in terms of these specific works in the bedroom, there's definitely a sense of intimacy with all of yes. them. I think, you know, all all three of the artists are very different. They literally come from, you know, different demographic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds. They have very different concerns, but they are for them deep concerns about their own identity, their own cultural backgrounds. And over the years, and it's it's one of the reasons in retrospect why I think I was okay deaccessing that first work is the art that I or not that I, but the art that continues to resonate with me is artwork that is created by someone who is from an underrepresented background and who really is doing a deep investigation of their own personal history or their cultural histories or of their own bodies and figures. And with that, even works that don't reveal themselves right away you know, I don't honestly, like, I don't find people who reveal everything there is to, to reveal about themselves right away. I, th- I, I think it's interesting to get to know somebody over time, to get to know artwork over time. And it's part of what the art does is, is slows down time. I love that. And I, I love the comparison that you made between artworks and people and what you're drawn to. And I, I talk about that a lot. And I, I say that I like art similar to the people that I like. And I, I'm attracted to humor and I'm also attracted to beauty. And so I, I really love your idea that you're interested in, in artworks and people that reveal themselves over time. And, and it's true because the first impression is the first impression and then you know the longer you look the more time you spend look the more time you spend talking to someone really getting to know them and what they have experienced and what they believe in and what their values are it's it's really interesting i love that you identified that that art does that as well yeah yeah and it's a little bit chicken and egg right because i think that i think that a shared quality in all great art is that it, it stops you and it slows you down, but you know, you come to it in different ways, depending on the space, your mood, the day, right? And, and yes. you're in a different headspace sometimes, racing faster, 
or slowing down. Yes. And I try and be really mindful of that. And also, I guess, honest about it. Sometimes people will come and pitch me and I on an idea and I'm like, you know what? You just don't want to pitch me on that right now. Like I'm hungry or <laughs> I woke up too early this morning or, you know, like, let's come back to it, you know, when, um, when I'm, when I'm more open to things. And that definitely happens with art too. I mean, and interestingly for me, and, and I'd be curious to have you share this as well. I know that art can transport me out of my current mental state, whatever it is. And, and I use it for, for that purpose too. Do you have experiences with that, that you could share? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, very recent experiences. Last week, I don't, I don't know if you're feeling this, there's some weird energy in the air right now. And while we don't need yeah. to overthink it here today, I'm starting to wonder if we're finally in that moment post-pandemic where the dust has settled and, you know, we've wanted that for so long. And now it's like, okay, now, like, this is what it looks like. Now, what are you going to do with it? And I, I, I feel like there's like a lot of bonkers energy around us and was invited to a studio visit last week. And my first thought was, oh my goodness, I should not be squeezing this into my schedule. I don't have time for this, but something told me to say yes. And so I did. And I was so grateful to the artist and whatever moved this artist to, to reach out to me, who I hadn't seen since well before the pandemic, to come and look at work before it was shipped out for for exhibits in New York and Germany, um, it was Regan Moss. And like truly, it was the busiest week. And I stepped into her studio and time stopped. We were totally present and just really looking at the incredible forms she had been making, the new kinds of mark making that these objects involved. And before I knew it, I, I was there for almost two hours and could have stayed for at least two hours more just dissecting everything that she was thinking about when she was creating these forms and everything going on in her life. She is someone who identifies as a woman. She works as an attorney, as as in in-house corporate counsel. She's not just like dabbing. She has a full other job. And as we, as I joke around, not to digress too much, most part-time jobs, particularly for women, are just full-time jobs with part-time pay. So like here yes. she is, you know, doing that and also a full-time maker and a mother. And we were just talking about everything behind these works that were sort of not only about her life, but about collectively what's going on in the human experience, particularly in the United States. And it's following ideas of the justice system, you know, like one phase of the works was due process. And another one was intention and sort of breaking down the language of the law. And as an attorney myself, not practice anymore, but I'm educated as, as one. It was just, it was just fascinating to me how how relevant it was and and just a reminder of the freedom that abstract 
art gives us to enter ideas and discuss ideas in a way that often feels safer for people. Um, yeah, it was, it was just, it was a beautiful experience. I love that. I love that. I was looking at your foundation, the description of what you're interested in and committed to, and this idea of ensuring that everyone has access to equity and career pathways, uh, along with inclusive platforms for their narrative and, or narratives, plural. And you reference this idea of part-time pay for full-time work for women. And I was watching a TV show last night that I, that I like, it's called The Good Doctor. And there was a scene where one of the doctors was choosing through in vitro the different embryo choice, male or female, son or daughter. And there was a joke that was made about how the women have longer life expectancy, but they'll be paid less. And it was shared by the the primary character who's autistic and just speaks, you know, directly without a filter. And it just was such an interesting like insertion in popular culture of this, you know, widely known, but often not as I think talked about aspect of uh, women and work. And, and, and you just referenced that as well. So I'm, I'm interested to hear you just share a little bit about your commitment to um, using your platform to shine some light on that topic. Yeah, um, I think that what my concerns are address underrepresented populations broadly. I'm thinking about women in the arts. I'm thinking about people of color, indigenous people, you know, people with less physical access, and really when it comes down to it, acknowledging the realities of who the decision makers are, what is what gets me excited about art, first and foremost, are the artists. I think that artists are visionaries. They're almost creatures in our culture. I think they're seeing between the spaces in a way that a lot of us aren't taking the time or have the time or the ability to do. But at the end of the day, there are so many incredible visual artists who will never get to be seen and heard unless the decision makers in our institution in this country, institutions in this country are, are seeking them out. And so there needs to be that same diversity of representation in, um, in our museum spaces, curators, educators, um, community programmers, even development, it's it's really complex, this art world that we're in. I've chosen to focus on the United States because one, one can only be concerned with so much. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's important to me, I, I think there's, there's momentum here um, for better or worse because of unfortunate events and crises going on in our country over the past handful of years, there's a momentum and an openness to, to recognize the need and create, or rather recreate these 
spaces that have been predominantly spaces of whiteness, particularly when you're talking about a comprehensive or encyclopedic museum in this country, the the will to to bring more diversity of thought is there right now. But over my years in my many roles in the art world, whether it's as a collector, as a trustee, as a journalist, I've had both casual and formal conversations with artists, change makers, curators, directors who have become friends. And, you know, this isn't the first moment by any means that this has happened in our country. And yet we have these breaks in the career pathways for people of underrepresented backgrounds and under-resourced backgrounds in our institutions. And, and it has limited the way that the information and, and the history of art or of this world has, has been handed to generations of audiences that, that walk into museums in this country. So I'm I'm just really focused on on changing that both for the exterior for you know community engagement and audiences but also for the interior. You know, I I have a lot of conversations particularly with younger generations of artists and career professionals who just don't see any way except for for burning, burning down the museums and starting all over again. Um, and I just don't believe it needs to be that radical. You know, yeah. change is slow, which is frustrating. But we're in a position right now, if we're intentional and we're all communicating about these about these concerns to, to really make, you know, I hate to use the word systemic change. I feel like it's it's almost overused, but I don't have a better one to really make systemic change in our institutions such that people, anybody can walk into a museum and feel like they belong because they are able to connect with diverse narratives. Uh, and I was, I was reading somewhere recently that a survey, it would be great if I could point to exactly which one it was, but I can't remember. Um, there was a survey proving with data and metrics that diversity of thought and messages to audiences of belonging that make people connect when they walk into a museum is not, in fact, about, it, about the narrative being from somebody who is exactly like you or looks exactly like you. It is truly about the variety of narratives that make people feel more comfortable and make people feel like they belong in the space. Change is slow and then it's fast, right? And then often there's like a backlash. I love this idea of cottywampling and moving with purpose towards an unknown destination, being willing to sit in an uncomfortable space to have real conversations. You, you reference museums and different people's perspectives on, on how museums can be of service and, and what the role of the museum is. And you serve as a, a museum trustee and, and also as a trustee in some other organizations. And I'm curious to ask you about a couple of them. But I'd love to ask you first about why, why you serve as a museum trustee and you know, what you hope to, to do in, in that role and why it's important to you personally. Um, that's a really good question. What 
I hope to do in that role or the impact that I hope to make is is to really be a part of bridging these silos that I'm speaking about. I think that people come to boards and leaderships for for many different reasons, from many different backgrounds. I'm on the board of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And when I came onto the board, it was mostly comprised of amazing professionals who tended to come from more of a civic concern than necessarily a collecting background or an art background. You know, a lot of those people have now become collectors and are closer to the art and there are more collectors and museum world professionals on that board. But I always like to think that the unique role that I play is that I am spending an extraordinary amount of time with art. I'm not just about being there to help acquire objects financially or build buildings. I'm very lucky that I can participate in that. But to me, my greater value is that I do have an ability to to comfortably spend time with curators, educators, artists, and the individuals that I believe these spaces were created for. And I'm I'm kind of straddling a bunch of the worlds and and can be a bridge in those conversations. I think it's so important. And I think proximity to art and frankly, love of art is so important in trusteeship. And I think institutions can get wrapped up a lot in administrative conversations and and institution building and all those things are important. And at a staff meeting this week, you know, I was talking with our team about, you know, what it is we can do and what it is we just can't do. Not that it shouldn't be done, but that it's for other people to do. And that at the very essence of what we do, it's it's always about art and artists and connecting people. I think to make their lives better. I I love having trustees who really prioritize the art, whatever their knowledge level is, and and the fact that you have this really interesting background in writing about art and producing films about art. I, I think is super additive. Let's let's talk about that. Talk to me about your transition from um, being a lawyer to being a a critic, a journalist, and, and a writer about art. How did that How did that happen? I believe it happened because I always liked writing. It's it's something that I I do well, if I may. And the more I self educated myself with art, um, and I took a couple art history classes in undergrad, and my parents said to me, what, what are you doing that for? You can, It's a waste of your time. That's going to help you get into a good law school. So that was pretty much it in terms of the formal education after freshman year. I felt so privileged that I could educate myself. And, you know, we could go on and on about how transparent this world is that we choose to participate in. You know, it's often spoken about in terms of the marketplace, but even the institutions and the sharing of ideas 
at leadership and academic levels, I think, are also quite opaque. And I felt so grateful that I had an entry point into this world and people were sharing, not just the ability to acquire art with me, like that's lovely, but talking about ideas freely and having the conversations and sharing the books, you know, curators and museum directors and artists sharing with me the books that they were reading. I really wanted to be able to share that information with other people who, for whatever reason, didn't have access, maybe, or don't have access. Maybe they don't have access because they they simply can't afford the time or the money that that takes. Maybe they don't have access because it's just not a priority and they want to know a little bit, but they don't need to become experts. I also, I, I sort of joke around, you know, code switching is a very serious concept and we, we often throw it around in conversations about diversity and the comfort level of people of color in certain spaces, but I think we're all code switching in certain ways. And for me, again, I, I'm self-aware and I, I noticed that I became this bridge between different, different um, communities in the art world and that I'm speaking different languages sometimes or dressing different ways in my attempts, not just for me to be understood and welcome, but in the hopes that people of different communities will be more receptive to the ideas that I'm sharing. And I, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm digressing, but to land the plane, the writing was very much for me about the hopes of bridging different communities. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't writing about art by Black artists only after June of 2020. I started doing that a really long time ago because I was learning so much that I hadn't been taught in those couple of art history classes or that I wasn't seeing in museums before I started spending time with Franklin Sermons at LACMA or before I got to know somebody like Thelma Golden, or I started working with Cesar Garcia at the Mistake Room, who was very concerned with, you know, quote unquote, underappreciated artists before that became another one of those buzzwords. You know, he was, he was showing artists, inter international artists, 10 years ago, who uh, you know, nobody had heard of, and he couldn't give away if he were selling it, that now are at Hauser and Worth. It was really, in a nutshell, just that I was excited and felt privileged to be spending time with these change makers, getting to know these narratives that weren't out there. And I, I wanted to help get it out there more to audiences that were not walking into museums every day or, or spending the kind of time with artists, with change makers, with curators and museum professionals like I was. I noticed in some of the Lala magazine articles, you're credited as the writer, but also the producer. And so I was curious about that. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that distinction. 
or that addition, however you think of it. Yeah, I think that, you know, I started off with writing as as a second act. Um, and maybe this touches more to the question that you really were asking. I started writing as a second act. Initially, I created, I don't know what you want to call it, a, a digital magazine or website. But I had started my own digital magazine. And looking back, I think I was doing the work of like 20 people. I was the writer. I was the editor. I was the producer. Um, it was nuts. I think like I didn't. It's catching up with me now. I didn't sleep for four years because I was just on all time zones all the time. When um, a friend who was a, a magazine, a, a hard copy magazine editor came to me with my first cover story, which was on our beloved Chara Schreier, who, who recently passed. I That was a beautiful opportunity. I was, quote unquote, exclusively the writer. And it was a lot of extra work, you know, the sort of, I hope I'm not not letting anybody down by sharing this dirty secret. But when you write about somebody as a writer, when you're writing about somebody's collection or when you're writing about architecture and design, we're in a world now in that publishing industry where as the writer, you don't even go to the space live. You're it's a trading of a lot of information from a lot of people to to be efficient and so as as the producer or as the editor you kind of get your hands in the full picture rather than exclusively the writing which which is great for me because it's who I am I don't even think about it a lot of the time I'm not just a writer I'm a re- I'm a researcher and I hold on to a lot of relationships in my life. And so I always can find the resources that it takes to produce the whole, whether it's a magazine article or a film. So I guess that's the difference is being the producer. It's more about the holistic endeavor, if you will, than only the text. You also were one of the producers on a a pretty incredible documentary about the art world, the art of making it. And I'd love to have you share with us how that, how that came together. And I know it's an award-winning documentary. What was that like for you? That was a gift during a world pandemic. I had met Debbie Wish, who was the main producer. This was her baby when she had done The Price of Everything, it's several years ago now. And she became one of those people in the art world where once we met when I was writing an article about The Price of Everything and her and her producing partner on that film, it became one of those situations where we had never seen each other before. And then after that, we were Mm. everywhere in the the art world (laughs) together all the time. And she originally came to me with this idea based on pieces of the price of everything, which ultimately shaped into a film, if we're going to oversimplify it, about the marketplace in the art world, a piece that kind of landed on the cutting room floor that dove deep into MFA programs. And she knew I had a lot of relationships with artists and curators, and she wanted me to come on board to, to 
work on the film and be a producer. And I fought it for a little bit. I don't consider myself of the film industry. I, at the time, had a lot of not great opinions about it. And I I just kept saying to her, I'm happy to share my information. It's why I write. I'm not one of those people that, you know, that hoards my information or is competitive about it. Just like, tell me what you want. And she was kind of insistent. She would not accept no for an answer. And it became an incredible experience for many reasons. One was that relative to writing a story, I loved being a part of a team and collaborating and sharing ideas, bouncing ideas off of each other. Um, Cause it was, it wasn't just Debbie and I, we had, we had a couple other people on the team and we all came from different areas of expertise, you know, and different levels of, of involvement in the art world and film and storytelling. And what I loved about it was to me at the end of the day, a story is a story and it's just a matter of, you know, what, which realm you're choosing to tell it in or with, but it's still a narrative with a beginning and a middle and an end. And I love that when you're making a film, it reaches more audiences at once and has a longer tail than a magazine article. And I loved that this wasn't just an endeavor about me putting a filmmaker in touch with my favorite artists or curators, but it was about about having having the ability to shape the story that was being told and make sure in my opinion that it was being that these these professionals who so generously gave us our time that they were being cared for and what they were sharing was being cared for with the right level of sensitivity and that audiences were really going to be hearing the point of the film, which again, started off as this deep dive of the MFA world and what really ultimately ended up being a film about the entire ecosystem of the art world in the United States and questioning how we are serving young artists and how we are making sure that the diverse narratives are heard and preserved and accessible for people. So it was, and it was an extra exceptional experience during COVID because for better or worse, that slowed everything down. And even though we weren't able to be in person, we were absolutely having deeper, more extensive conversations about all of it on our film team than any of us would have had the time to do in quote unquote regular life. So it was just, it was amazing. And I think it's really cool that the film resonates more now than it did three years ago, which is hard to believe, but we we made that film three years ago. We were literally racing against the world going into quarantine to finish it, to finish up the majority of it. And it's just, there's the idea of two ideas, right? You have evolution and revolution, which you sort of alluded to earlier, right? And there's a a confluence of both. And I think that this film very much exemplifies that. Interesting, because as an insider in the art world, everything makes sense. And whether you're a fan of how things happen or or not or, or whatnot, you know, 
it, but you understand how things happen. And one of the criticisms often of the art world is that it's not transparent. You know, people don't understand it. They, they don't, they don't know what the kind of access points are, and and frankly, how accessible a lot of parts of the art world actually are. And so, I think some of these films that she's been making and and that you that you worked with her on this one in particular, I think part of that is is being able to make the art world more accessible to a broader audience. And and oftentimes, popular culture tells a, a stereotypical view of, of what something is. And so it's it's interesting to be able to have that kind of authenticity to to the narrative. And, and it's interesting to hear that, that you helped play that role here. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, I think, also about the commonality with all of the writing I've done. I never aspired to be a writer for Art Forum or any publication or means of communication for that matter that that use art speak and speak mm -hmm. in in languages that that are opaque I think that that's baloney that's to me an endeavor to try to prove your own level of understanding or intelligence and especially with a film you know Debbie and I talked about this a lot it would be foolish to be making a film for ourselves, right? Yes, like if we're being honest, it needs to have enough expertise that a film like this has credibility with insiders and with professionals. But the whole purpose was for it to be accessible to broad audiences. And I love it's on many different airlines now. And we're getting a lot of feedback, particularly from people flying on Delta, just because domestically people are doing that a lot again. And it's really fascinating to hear the different feedback from different types of individuals, whether they are museum professionals or somebody who knows nothing about the art world. There are access points in that film for everybody and connection points for everybody and kind of like everything else we're talking about, right? There's a, there is a diversity of narratives on many different levels in the film, right? Like you have these four young artists and they are of very different backgrounds, not just ethnically and racially, but in terms of their education and the materials that they're working with. And then hearing somebody like Charles Gaines, who has the ability to go back retrospectively and can speak to what the art world was for an artist decades ago relative to now and what purpose or role the museum plays now relative to decades ago or how he was treated as a Black artist decades ago relative to now in the worlds of academics institutions and the marketplace. It, it's all super complex. And it was a, it was a challenge, you know, to to figure out how much you know, how much was the right amount to simplify these ideas for people who knew, knew nothing, but making sure we were still honoring the complexity of it all. How do you pick what you are interested in in writing about. So you've, you've written about some of my kind of favorite people. You, you referenced earlier Chara Schreier. 
I read a really great piece that you wrote about Hilary Pestis, who was a recent guest on this podcast. How do you decide what you want to what you want to write about, and who? That's a really good question. I choose, and I actually hadn't thought about this. The simple answer is, well, just viscerally, whomever and whatever is exciting me. But I guess it's not that simple. I think I choose to write about people who who are interesting and doing something new and approaching it again from a groundbreaking way or just a different way than other people have done it, whether it's an artist making art or a collector, you mentioned Chara, or a collector who is collecting with purpose and a different kind of intentionality than we hear about, or leaders in the art world who have maybe taken a non-traditional path or just paths that we're not hearing enough about. I don't want to, I think we throw around the term underappreciated, but I would maybe say the people and the art that I'm writing about are just, again, from, from underrepresented perspectives. One of the boards that you sit on is, it, it kind of caught my eye. So just want to make sure that I get this right. It is, well, actually, it's a, it's a football association. What can you, can you let us know what that is? And, and yeah, so, cause I, I mean, I love the interconnection of art and sports and I talk a lot about the idea of practice and I think there's a lot of similarities between artists and athletes. And I have no idea if that's what any of this is about for you, but I'd love to ask you about that. Yes. I actually, I happened upon this totally serendipitously. My husband was always a huge soccer fan and we've been involved with a few football or soccer, as we call it in our country teams. And we're involved with the Los Angeles football club. And I'm on the foundation board where we are still working on tightening up the mission. If you look it up on the website, but we're the actual stadium is located in district nine and we're trying to use sports as a force of good. But I would say for me personally, what I love about it is is soccer or football, if you want to call it internationally, is another universal language that is accessible to everybody, just like visual art. And that's the piece that's interesting to me. I'm not somebody who gets super excited over watching a sporting event. I would pick going to an art exhibit any day or, you know, even last night, Larry went to an LAFC game. I went to a talk with Julie Maratu and Robin Coast Lewis, and he was in his heaven. I was in mine. But often these, these two worlds meet. And I do believe, I mean, yes, there's the literal that humans are, are, complicated beings and you can be interested in both sports and visual art 
But then there's also the metaphor that I think you're referencing, which is that these are two populations in addition to them kind of working professionally in a universal language that also is about being motivated, working, you know, thinking about working on your own versus working as a team, caring for yourself. And then sort of if you're thinking about these roles as artists and athletes with the concentric circles, you then have the communities around you. And both of these worlds, I see it, even if you're shrinking it down to a conversation just about Los Angeles, there are exceptional, unique communities that I never understood attached to this soccer team, where literally we have this fan club called the 3252 because it started out with over 3,000 members before we even signed our first players who were so excited that there was a soccer team coming to Los Angeles that they have different families within this fan group. They have official governance within each of these families. They do activities and philanthropic work on their own outside of and in between the games. And what we do as the foundation is kind of officially carry out the work that the team is doing to improve Los Angeles, whether it's bringing sports and or other types of wellness to under-resourced areas of our city or giving access to recreation to to communities in our city. And again, for me, the exciting part is, I guess, at the end of the day, it's it's about the community engagement that a universal language provides the ability for. You know, you don't, you you can, there are no requirements to come to a soccer game, to enjoy a soccer game. And there are no, and there's no right or wrong way of being involved with a sports community. And similarly, there's no right or wrong way to be viewing art or taking, that's been a, a too common misconception, which is yeah, I, part of, part of my concern. You, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Everybody should feel comfortable walking into a museum or an art gallery and spending time with art and talking about art. You know, there no, there's yeah. no fancy vocabulary necessary. There's no formal education necessary. And I love, I love the way that you are highlighting, you know, where you're writing, where you're contributing your, your insight and, you know, the idea of putting art out in front of people who may not really even be looking for it right and so it's been very it's been very thoughtful i think the ways that you've really strategically shared that access and and that perspective on art i would love to end by asking you allison why art matters i think that art is one of the last modalities that we have left on this planet to to bring people together in in a way that feels safe and 
in a way that, as as you point out, in a way that that's not didactic that we we might happen into when we don't even realize it creates connections it creates empathy and art creates understanding amongst humans in a way that requires no background no history just just being with it I think that's that's a beautiful thing and we don't we don't have enough of that I started our conversation talking about what drew you to art and expressing my interest in, I guess, the diversity of of different spaces in which you've had this connection with art. And often when I ask people why art matters, it's, I think the underlying question there is, is very much external and about, I think, impact and maybe even universality. And one of the things that I was really struck by in doing a little more research into you and preparing for the conversation and sort of, I often just trust my instincts in terms of who I invite to, to be guests. And, and I just got a sense from, from you without knowing you very well yet, even that you love art and, and I love art. And I guess I, I just wanted to confirm that, <laughs> you know, and, and to ask, to ask why you love art. It inspires me. It slows me down. Um, you know, when you were asking about recent experiences, truly, no matter what else is going on in my day, when I walk into a space with hate to use the word great artist because that means something different for everybody, but with, with artists who I really connect with, I'll say it stops me in my tracks and re it refocuses for me kind of our, our or not our, uh, you asked me about me, um, for me, it, it recenters my thoughts about how I want to spend my five minutes on this earth. What kind of impact I want to be making here. How, I don't know if this sounds like narcissistic, but you asked me about me. I did. It just, it, it really reminds me of what's important to me while I'm here. And I love that that I, the answer to that is something different for everybody. But yeah, I, I just think that um, art slows me down, re- recenters me, refocuses my mind on what's really important while I'm here, which is about leaving the world a, in a better place than it was before I got here. You know, just making sure as much information about you know, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, as much information as possible about the foundations on which our present world is built on and what we can do to to make that better together. Thank you for such an honest and authentic answer. And I do think that these big questions and, and these honest questions about what it is we're here to do, what our highest and best use is, are 
for me, what what gets me up every day, being being purpose driven. So I I got that from you, and I appreciate you articulating it here and sharing that inspiration with our audience. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to do this. And I'm grateful that you're here in Southern California, that we have your experience and your wisdom reshaping an incredible museum here and emanating into into the communities. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining in today and listening to Allison talk about how art has impacted her life and how she's been moved and how she's been able to give back. My guest next time is artist Narcisco Martinez, and he and I met when he was included in the recent 2022 California Biennial at the Orange County Museum of Art. And that exhibition was actually titled by a work that he had in the exhibition that we were able to add to the collection of the Orange County Museum of Art. And the conversation with him is fantastic. It's so soulful and authentic and moving. And I know you're going to love it. I did. About Art is part of the Why Art Matters Project, a global initiative that makes art accessible, relevant, and transformational. We connect all to art through books, a podcast series, talks, brand collaborations, TV, and more. This episode was mixed by William Melbourne. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listen because it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. We will be back again every other Tuesday with new episodes. Thank you so much for being a part of our community.